Before we start, just a quick announcement. To celebrate National Science Week, in situ science, we'll be doing another live podcast. On the 9th of August at the Camelot Lounge in Marrickville, we will have a panel of Sydney's brightest scientists and science communicators talking about the realities of a life in science. The event is called Life vs. Science. There will be food, drink, and all sorts of nonsense. Find out more at insituscience.com or on the Sydney Science Festival website. It's going to be great. I'll see you there. Welcome back. You're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we chat to a different scientist about what they do and why they do it. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode I'm joined by a paleontologist, biomechanics expert, and postdoc extraordinaire, Ada Klinkhammer. Ada, thanks for coming on the podcast. No problem. Thanks for having me. No worries. Now, important first questions first. Have you seen Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom? I have not. You haven't? I have not. I, oh. I think I've avoided seeing it. I read the, um, I watched the trailer and I read the, you know, the premise of it. And So that's, uh, that's not a must-see total geek out for, for paleontologists then? No, I think the first Jurassic Park was uh, pretty uh, scientifically accurate. They actually spoke <laughs> to paleontologists when they were designing it and they took some artistic license. Mm-hmm. But I think the further along it's gotten in the... In the franchise, it's kind of gotten to the point where it's CGI, drama central, yeah. all that kind of stuff, and I don't think they've spoken to a scientist in a decade so, or so. So you're so. boycotting them, or you're just... Um, wait till I it's guess on a you plane. could say that. Yeah, I'll probably watch <laughs> it once it's on Netflix or something, but um, uh, yes, I don't think it deserves really paying money to go see it. <laughs> I think, what about the, the first Jurassic World as in the, the, the Chris Pratt one. Yeah, so. I did see that one. Yeah. Yeah, it was intriguing. Yeah, but um, no better but on the science side of things. Yeah, not great. <laughs> um, and, and it's weird, actually. It, it happens so rarely that um, something is actually presented within your field of knowledge. You know, usually you're just listening. <laughs> oh, great, I love law dramas, you know. Yeah. But I know nothing about law, so whatever they do is fine by me. And then you go watch something like, Jurassic World and going that's not plausible at all and it completely takes you out of the experience so it was good fun yeah. um, but I really had to sit back and say okay Ada you're just a normal person just watch it for the enjoyment <laughs> don't have a whinge about the science yeah. I think when they, they started throwing in bits about we're going to chuck in cuttlefish DNA so this dinosaur can inch color yeah exactly I might. Yeah, now you're just taking the piss yeah. <laughs> yeah it makes a big difference when you've got science fiction that's actually tried to understand the science yeah. as opposed to something that's just throwing in big words that sound science Yeah, exactly. And it's kind of cooler if you're taking the science. Like science yeah. fiction, the whole point of it is that, it, you know, something like this could happen and they're playing with those ideas about what happens, what could happen if yeah. this event happened or they discovered this or that's the fun of it. But, yeah. you know, for Jurassic World, it's just kind of like, well, what looks cooler? Yeah. Let's just play yeah. with that. But it stops being science know. fiction and just becomes fantasy. Yeah. So, yeah. Imagine gonna... dragons. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That'll be the next one. There'll be like another Jurassic World where they'll create one with wings and then, you know. Well, having seen Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, you're oh. almost there. Oh, Pretty fast. <laughs> Maybe I won't watch it on Netflix. <laughs> when they revealed the big new fancy dinosaur in this one, I was half expecting it to start flying out the window. Yep, okay. <laughs> <laughs> ah, never mind. Well, I mean, talking of how good the first Jurassic Park was in terms of its accurate science, 
one of the classic scenes in Jurassic Park when they see the very first dinosaur, um, and it's a sauropod that rears up on its hind legs mm -hmm. to eat from that really tall tree. Yeah. So, can sauropods rear up on their hind legs? Yeah, well, that's <laughs> that's the interesting thing because movies always show it. Um, but I mean, obviously, sauropods are incredibly huge. So, is that is that actually plausible? So it's one of those things I wanted to analyze in my PhD. Mm -hmm. um, and at the base level, the, the information that I found shows that technically they could. Um, so I used finite element analysis techniques mm -hmm. um, to study the, the shape of the bones and stress in bones. Um, and this technique is often used actually in engineering and stuff. So when they're testing, um, you know, car crashing, car crashes or, um, you know, Boeing jet engines to look mm. at where stresses are. It's this exact same sort of um, procedure just applied to dinosaurs. So, uh, so what is it there? What? <laughs> so it's, it, it's interesting. So you build these models. You can apply densities and and different things to the models to make them kind of realistic. In a computer model. Yeah, like computer models, model. yes, or yeah. computer-based. And then you apply forces. And this program does these incredibly complex mathematical calculations yeah. um, to all these elements in your model. So that's that's what they the model is made up of, these tiny little elements that all join together to create a bone. Mm. Um, so it applies all these forces and basically does all these calculations. And at the end, you end up with a heat map, basically. Yeah. So different colours represent different levels of stress. Yeah. And then you can go in and actually look at the actual values, but the pictures themselves are quite pretty <laughs> so that's that's really nice especially yeah. for presentations um so what i did is i kind of applied a, a standard stress or a standard force onto these major limb bones in mm. sauropods so the humerus and the femur because they're the largest bones in the limbs yeah. with the idea that well if sauropods could rear bipedally these large bones had to support their weight if yeah. if these bones were way too stressed then obviously yeah. they wouldn't have been able to rear. Um, and so when you get this, I guess, a 3D scan or a build of a yeah. bone, are you just looking at like size and dimensions of the bone or are you able to get some sort of information on bone density as well? Uh, it depends. Yeah. With fossils, um, sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. It really depends on the preservation of the fossil. Mm. Um, so you generally would put them through a CT scanner um, and sometimes you look and you've got this great internal geometry that you can see and then mm -hmm. you can apply all these densities. Yeah. And sometimes you'll look and it'll just be rock. Okay. Um, unfortunately, in my case, it was just rock. <laughs> so my models are kind of probably more simplified than I would have liked, yeah. um, but that's all I had. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I can't create densities. That's worse than just simplifying the model that you're create you yeah. know that you're making is actually just making things up mm. um so yeah so my models were pretty simple yeah um but when i did the analysis i found that these bones weren't particularly stressed they weren't you know they were actually coping fairly well um with the weight of these animals so yeah. it led to the presumption that actually they probably could rear bipedally or at least some of them could so these, these um, sauropods these are our, our long necks our, our yeah. little foots and our our loos and our whatnot yeah yeah the the iconic dinosaur they yeah. keep saying because it's the one that everyone kind of recognizes as a dinosaur yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
But then there was one that I remember learning about heaps as a kid that doesn't actually exist. Can't remember which one it was. Brontosaurus. Yeah, I think it was Brontosaurus. <laughs> they changed, it. except I think they brought it back recently. Ah, sweet. Yes, yeah, so they did an analysis <laughs> and they went. Actually, some of these taxa that were moved into the the other group yeah. look like they are de- different enough. So then they brought back the genus Brontosaurus <laughs> for a couple of them. So it's not quite as big, I don't think, as it used to be, but yeah. it, it's exists now. Um, and so yeah. the ones that you're doing these biomechanics. On yep. their their leg bones. How big are we talking here? Yeah, pretty big. I mean, not the biggest. Yep. Um, so they range from about fourteen tons through to thirty five tons. Are the ones that I'm looking it's at. It's hard so, to envisage. <laughs> I know. So if you think a, a full grown male African elephant weighs yep. about one ton. Oh, geez. Yeah. So the smallest so, ones. Yeah. Or 14 tons. Yeah, pretty much. They're <laughs> big animals. Yeah, yeah so they're, they're 20 metres long as well. You yeah. know, it's just mind-boggling, really, how huge they were. And, and it's funny because working with digital data, you don't quite get that because you're looking at these bones on the screen and they're, mm. they're small, you know. And it's only when I go to the museums and I'm standing in front of this bone, I'm thinking, Wow. Yeah, these are fairly big, you know. It's about, you know, yeah, this you? thigh bones as long as I am. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how do you, I know we, we talk, at least as a zoologist, we always talk about how, you know, you can't get that big on land. And the only reason whales can get this big is because they're underwater and it's more buoyant and supports their body. And the biggest yeah. things we have on land now are things like elephants and giraffes. Yeah. Which are one fourteenth of these guys to one thirty fifth of these guys. Um, sauropods had a number of really cool adaptations um, in their skeleton to be able to to kind of support that weight. So um, uh, elephants, they're quite solid animals, um, and obviously sauropods are too. But if you have a look at say their vertebrae through their their spine, mm. um, they have this kind of what they call pneumatoses. Um, so basically, it's like someone's gone in and carved out all the unnecessary bone. Mm. So all you're left with are the structures that are essential to support. So you've got a spine that is incredibly strong and able to support this animal, but with absolutely no extra bone that would make it any heavier than it needs to As be. They're hollow, or are they just got a lot? They're of... not hollow, but they're. Um, Minimalist, <laughs> I guess. Well designed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, they, they, they don't have little knickknacks on the shelf and, <laughs> and things to look pretty. They've got a knife and a fork and a bowl and, you know, if, if you're equating it to a house, they, yeah. they don't have any extra bone, um, you know, in the vertebrae that they don't need to have. Right. And so that and a couple of other different adaptations really helps so that even though they're huge, they're lighter than they would have been if you just scaled up a elephant. All right. Yeah. So in terms of measuring or calculating their weight and how big they would have been, mm. is that just a matter of scaling up things that have similar sort of bone structures or how do you actually get um, that number in the end? Yeah, there are a few methods that you can use. Like early on, they did things like creating a model of a dinosaur and then dipping it in water, mm. you know, and calculating it yeah. that way. Um, these days they use uh, techniques that are like convex hulling, um, which is basically using mathematical concepts to create 
the mass of the sauropod mm. in different sections okay. um, and then calculating that and then they can calculate kind of the if you had a fat sauropod or a thin sauropod <laughs> and, and kind of looking at the differences in weight that that yeah. would have caused so then you can kind of get a more accurate measure they think and yeah. then calculating maybe what proportion of the animal was air so like you know lungs and air sacs yeah. or anything plus the fat like we don't even know how much fat they would have had so yeah it's it's, it's very hard the estimates are generally you know very estimatey um <laughs> but there are a number of really cool methods that people yeah. can use to to create these estimates and the more and more people study them the more specific they get and the more you know quantitative mm. they get yeah which is cool yeah i kind of understood that you, know, you can, I guess, rebuild what muscles would be on a skeleton and start calculations from that. But yeah, I didn't even yeah. think about you know, how big their lungs were. You could take away that yeah. mess. Or like how, all their organs. If Did they have fatty tissue? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And the thing with sauropods as well, like with theropods, it's great because um, theropods evolved into birds. So we yeah. have birds, so it's kind of kind of helpful in that respect whereas sauropods we don't really have anything quite like them so yeah. it's just an extra level of kind of guesswork that you get with sauropods <laughs> i think but um i think that makes it more fun <laughs> <laughs> and so whenever you're doing these sort of digital reconstructions you can also put essentially put muscles on these bone skins you have yeah. to see how they moved yeah so do we know much about the sauropod muscles and how big a role they played in holding up that huge weight yeah exactly so they, they would have played at least you know a pretty major role mm. um because in any, any animal any vertebra uh, you know vertebrate bones and muscles work always work together yeah um and it's essential to keep the body moving that these work together so the muscles would have kind of um helped in large part to keep this animal upright and moving yeah um but of course since we don't get muscles fossilized we kind of have to estimate those yes um well, tell me about the different uh, tell me about the different stances that sauropods have yeah, <laughs> as to whether so, they had wide stances or narrow stances yeah it's, it's it's really cool a fair while ago you know some researchers discovered that looking at sauropod trackways that all the trackways weren't quite the same you know, they varied a little bit. Mm. Um, and then looking at the skeletons, this was then reflected in the skeletons. So they came up with this kind of narrow gauge versus wide gauge dichotomy, basically, in, mm. in sauropods. So you've got narrow gauge stance sauropods where they the definition is that the footprints um, are kind of towards the midline of the body, whereas in narrow gauge sauropods, the footprints are kind of further away. All right. Um, and this has a number of adaptations in the skeleton as well. So the wide gauge stance sauropods um, kind of have a broader trunk and they have legs that are kind of splayed outwards and arms mm. that do the same. Um, but it's interesting because people are still trying to figure out why. Yeah. You know, you've got the evidence there, but why? So then, yeah, I imagine if you're that big, you'd want to have your legs under you. Yeah, exactly. Weight, yeah, but... keeping that columnar stance for sauropods would have been incredibly important because they are so heavy you don't mm. sauropods pretty much guaranteed couldn't run mm. um, because it would have just imposed too many high impact forces on their bones it would have been incredibly dangerous mm. um, but then you've got this group of sauropods the titanosaurs that have this wide gauge stance where they're purposefully shifting their limbs away from this columnar stance 
and they're imparting more forces onto their mm. limbs, which is something that I found in my PhD, they're, they're imparting the higher forces. So I figure there must be some sort of trade-off. Yeah. They must have something pretty special to be willing to, you know, to, to have more stress on their limbs and yeah. risk the potential for breaking bones and stuff like that, more so than narrow-gauge sauropods. And if titanosaurs are doing it, they're the ones that can get stupidly big. Yeah, right. stupidly big. Over <laughs> 50 tonnes, I think, is the, the <laughs> estimate for the largest. All right. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a large animal. Yeah. So we're following up this podcast after a seminar you did here at UNE where you're talking about this. And I was amazed to learn that... These big four-legged sauropods had bipedal ancestors. Yeah. So does that mean they 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 share common ancestors with theropods, or do they split off different ways? What's going on? Yeah, pretty much they do. Um, It depends, kind of what what research you look at these days. A paper came out relatively <laughs> recently that swapped the whole dinosaur family tree around. Okay. Um, but no information has come out since then, really, yeah. where people are agreeing or disagreeing. But basically, um, sauropods and theropods are more closely related to each other than they are to ornithians, like uh, the duck-billed dinosaurs and, and chylosaurs and all those other cool, cool mm. dinosaurs. Um, so somewhere along the line, they did have a common ancestor. Yeah. Um, so the early sauropods, the sauropodomorphs, um, were small and bipedal. Okay. Yeah. And so they, it was a really easy thing to picture that these big four-legged things would have four-legged ancestors because somewhere along the line, their ancestors were four-legged, sort of almost crocodilian type of crawling on the ground yeah. things. And then they go back. So they call it, you know, becoming secondarily quadrupedal. And it only happens a couple of times yeah. um, in, you know, animal evolution. You, it's very rare to see. But, yes, yeah, so the ancestors of ancestors were these four-legged things. And then yeah. they went bipedal and now they're quadrupedal again. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Do you ever, you know, I don't know, just sit there and wish you could have seen these things? Alive. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really funny um, because, like I do, I, I really wish that I could just, especially when my models are not going right or I'm really having to um, put a lot of effort into figure out, figuring out what was going on yeah. with the location of a muscle or something. I'm sitting there going, God, it would be so much easier if I could just <laughs> go out into the field and, like, you know, watch one. Yeah. You know, and that would help so much in figuring it out. Mm. But... um. I think part of the enjoyment is not knowing as well. So I'm in two minds. I want to go see one walking around. That would be yeah. awesome. But at the same time, I enjoy the mystery of it. So. Yeah, so that's the lore of paleontology is the detective work. Yeah. You know, just that story you were saying about how looking at their footprints in the ground made people rethink how their hips must be structured. And that's, yeah, yeah. It's a really neat I, um, story. I read a quote once, which was fantastic, talking about paleontology. And they said, paleontology is like a crime scene, except <laughs> that all the evidence has been left out in the rain for 60 million years. And everyone that was involved in the crime is dead. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, it was quite a fun way to look at it, because it is detective work, but really you know, with really sparse evidence yeah. a lot of the time. You started off your work in paleontology looking at fossil rats. Yes, little native native Australian mice. All right, what were you doing with them? 
Um, it was really cool. It was when I was doing my honours at um, the University of New South Wales, um, mm. and they have access to this fantastic fossil site in northern Queensland um, called Riversley. Mm-hmm. And Riversley has a huge diversity of Australian mammals um, right. from, you know, fairly recent past um, 20, 30 million years. Um, so there was one site up there, which is really cool. It's called Rackham's Roost, and it's mm. an uh, owl deposit. So basically um, they've flown into this cave and they've eaten all these animals and basically pooped it out or thrown up all the skeletons or you know whatever owls do. Mm-hmm. And so the cave floor is absolutely littered in these tiny, tiny little fossils, okay. um, which is really cool. And a lot of these fossils <laughs> are mice. And mice are really cool because they... Um, there are so many of them mm. and they're quite various so you can actually use them in a certain way to see what the environment was like or or you know mm. that all that kind of stuff but not many people research them so my like... job was to kind of take a couple of those and describe the species and basically contribute just a little bit more to our knowledge of fossil australian <laughs> mice in the hopes that it might be able to use used in the future to um better understand that's uh, that's such a cool story you're not just digging up fossilized bones that just so happen to be there you're discovering fossilized owl pellets yeah (laughs) yeah and and i I should have brought it in the um you can the the cave floor is just it's crazy it's just little pieces of bones you've got some teeth you've got some long bones you're just everywhere and it's all quite sharp and perfectly preserved you know, because also caves are pretty well preserved because they yeah. don't get access to all the elements and stuff. So they're not still much. grouped in little pellet lumps? No, no, <laughs> they're usually like kind of spread out a fair yeah. bit. But So you can't tell if this jawbone and this rib bone are No, often not, thing, yeah. which is some of the trouble that I had. I was looking at teeth, so yeah. and I had some upper teeth and some lower teeth, and yeah. in mice they look quite different. And even though... They were probably the same species. I couldn't quite say for yeah. certain because you're finding them together but not together. And, yeah, yeah. it can yeah. get a bit difficult. And so you're going from fossil rats to fossil dinosaurs yeah. or sauropods. Yeah. You don't get much bigger than that, so what's next? I know, I know. <laughs> it was funny. During, during my honours, I had a moment where I was describing this tooth of a, of a mouse and mm. it was, they're about two and a half millimetres long. Hmm. And I, I was putting them under a microscope to, to have a look and take photos, and I dropped one onto the carpet. <laughs> and it probably took me about 10 minutes to find this tiny tooth on the carpet. It was a holotype, <laughs> so it was like what I was basing my oh, description geez. on, I had to find this fossil. <laughs> Finally did, thank you, thankfully. But cut to three years later, and I'm standing in the Australian Age of Dinosaurs Museum up in Winton <laughs> with three men trying to turn over a single bone because it was so large we needed that much manpower to be able to flip <laughs> this bone over and I'm going I, I that you know that went a bit differently <laughs> there's a bit of a size change here um but yeah I don't know I guess I go smaller again <laughs> <laughs> well I mean, speaking of, of manhandling creatures tell me about when you brought a crocodile to the, the hospital <laughs> yeah that was good fun um yeah, a few people were quite entertained by that, especially FMS here at UNE. Got a phone call one day. They're like, there's a crocodile 
here for you. Um, <laughs> do you want us to sign for it? Or, like, you know. So um, let's start at the beginning. Yeah. What was this for? So uh, this was kind of the first project for my PhD. Yeah. Um, in order to reconstruct muscles of sauropods, you have to take their closest living relatives. So that is crocodiles and birds. Mm. So I figured I'd do this project looking at crocodile muscles to get an idea of muscles, but I'd never worked with muscles before. So mm. to kind of help me teach myself about um, musculature in these animals, um, but also to kind of try and do a digital reconstruction of them. Yeah. Um, so I had to get a crocodile, a couple of crocodile specimens. So I ordered a few from a crocodile farm up in Rockhampton. <laughs> Thank you, Kurana. Um, so they shipped down a couple of crocodiles for me to play with, basically. Dead, um, dead ones. Or dead ones, okay, yeah, 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 very dead, very dead and very frozen. Um, so they came here and they went into the freezer. And yeah. then when I wanted to work on them, um, because I was doing a lot of digital work, I had to defrost them and take them to Armadale Radiology in town. Um, so I defrosted this crocodile and put it in the back of my car and um, <laughs> drove it down to Armadale Radiology after hours. And very kindly, Carl, one of the technicians down there, um, stuck around after hours and to help me CT and MRI scan this um, this crocodile specimen. So I had all this scan data, and then I took it back up and put it in the freezer um, for when I needed it later on. So, all right. Yeah. So you still have this frozen crocodile? Yep, yep. Sitting around. in the field labs. <laughs> Two of them just just hanging out. Okay. <laughs> and so how you have this entire CT scan of a crocodile? Mm -hmm. What do you do with that data then? Um, so I used, the CT is great because then you've got the skeleton, yep. but the MRI is really good because then you have the muscles. Okay. So I combined the two scans together and then I basically digitally segmented out all the limb muscles in this crocodile, mm -hmm. which is a really time consuming process. But this meant I could get 3D models of all the muscles mm -hmm. and it meant I could then produce a 3D PDF. So um, if, if you've ever read a... a muscle description of anything or even a species description of mm. something it's really detailed and really dry and often really long so yeah. i had these muscles i think i described about 70 individual muscles mm. um and it it was you know incredibly time consuming and incredibly dry so i wanted to produce <laughs> something that would actually help with that process which was the visualization of the results so mm. by creating this 3d pdf um, i was able to kind of show the descriptions but then you can actually look at the 3d pdf and interact with the individual muscles and see where that muscle went which yeah. made it all a bit easier right. which so is good fun download... and then i was learning about muscles in the meantime so you, when you download your paper you have a little 3d model in your computer you can rotate and look at all these different muscles yeah. from different angles and yeah exactly sort of turn stuff. them all on and off and yeah it's pretty cool <laughs> <laughs> it's good fun so i feel like it's a pretty good skill to have at the end of your phd is be able to to build that yeah, yeah, and it's great. And I've already been involved in a project since then. Um, we did a similar, very similar project on horseshoe crabs yeah. um, with one of my colleagues here. Yeah. So we did the same thing looking at muscles in horseshoe crabs. Yeah. Um, and for the exact same reason, it's so much easier to visualize the results when you've got a 3D PDF yeah. to play with. Yeah. It's one of those things you forget we don't know yet. 
Yeah. <laughs> you assume we have these living creatures everywhere. Surely we must know yeah. about their anatomy. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? And the more I get into science, the more I realize how much we don't know. Yeah. I used to think they'd discovered all the dinosaurs before I get there. And I, mm. you know, I was quite worried that they would. And, it, and science would, <laughs> you know, paleontology would be resolved by the time I got there. And, you know, now I'm here and realizing how silly that is because I yeah. probably have an entire lifetime work, worth of work just on exactly what I did for my PhD. I spent my entire <laughs> life in the same area and I probably still would have more questions. Yeah. So there's always something you need to discover, even if they're living. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so you've finished your PhD now. Yep. And you've graduated and you're all officially yep. Dr. Ada now. Yeah, it's very exciting. I love, <laughs> I love popping on flights now. It's Dr. Ada. Oh, yeah. Any, any form you can put doctor on. Yeah, exactly. Not the reason I did the PhD, but definitely a nice byproduct. Yeah. <laughs> and so what's next? I'm not sure, to be honest. Um, you know, applying for jobs. I'm, I'm trying to be relaxed about the whole process and see where it takes me. Mm. Um, I'm not overly thrilled about the academic lifestyle. It's... Um, <laughs> Yeah, I know it's awful. On this podcast, I, I, I love the research. I think it's fantastic, um, but the thought of having to bounce around to different countries every couple of years for possibly the next ten years and still maybe not have a job at the end yeah. of it, it sounds kind of crappy to me. I mean, I, I guess some people would love it, but yeah. I, I like a bit of security. Like, I really want to own a turtle. Um, and they live for a long time time, you know yeah so (laughs) just silly little things like that I wouldn't be able to do so I'm kind of tossing up at the moment whether that's a a career move that's worth it or whether I maybe jump ship and go do something else and still use my research skills obviously but maybe in a different field Mm. that gives me a decent amount of pay and some job security (laughs) Yeah, so like, I'm trying to sort that out that one out at the moment. I wanted to buy a dog, and so I had to you know, compromise by getting a wolf hide. They only live for like six years or yeah. something, so I didn't get income for that long. I won't be allowed to too long. Yeah, just adopt all the old dogs. Like, they need homes, and yeah, if you're only going to be around for a couple of years, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a tough one, because you're in, well, what I call postdoc limbo, really, in that mm. you, you could be here forever. Or you could be here for a year. It's one of those yeah. strange things. And it's... And, it, and it's the weird one. Like, you know, the, the postdocs that you get there for two years, for instance. Hmm. But then when you're talking to the people offering the postdoc, they want you to apply for grants. So they want you there longer. Hmm. But then, of course, you don't know how much longer. Yeah. And then is that a place that you really want to be there for longer? Like, what yeah. if you don't like the place and you're just willing to be there for two years and then get out? Yeah. And they want you there for four years, possibly, if you get the grant that has a 15% success rate. <laughs> you know, it's you, there is so much uncertainty. It's quite confronting. That's one of the, the strangest things I f- feel about it is that when I get these postdoc gigs, I spend it applying for the next postdoc gig. Yes. So, uh, and it, it's, I don't know, it's, it's something that people should know because all the money that goes into employing researchers... Lots of it's wasted because it's spent on paying yeah. people to apply because for of the a job different grant. Yeah. yeah, and and the thought that okay, well maybe I get a postdoc in the US and that mm. goes for a couple of years, um, but then you need to have a job before you finish because if I finish, I'm going to have to move back to Australia and then possibly move again yeah. overseas 
if I don't have a job, like yeah. how to deal with that weird in between if you don't have a job, mm. because it's, of course the academic cycle is kind of long, you know, you might apply for a job and then get it six months later. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you do have to spend a lot of your actual work time applying for other jobs or for grants. <laughs> and it's crazy. <laughs> so what's, what's keeping you in science then? Um, I... Or keeping you in academia, I should ask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really enjoy the research. Um, mm. I love having the problem and, and trying to solve the problem using cool methods. Mm. Um, and it's quite a free, um, quite a free way to work. I can dictate my own time, my own schedule, um, and, and I really enjoy that. Mm. You know, if I'm having a terrible day, I can go home at two. Yeah. And no one cares. Whereas if I'm on a roll, I could stay for, you know, all night, which is also not ideal sometimes. But, but you know, you, you have that flexibility yeah. to, to do that. So that's great. And the research questions that I'm looking at, I find fascinating. And I really mm. enjoy kind of getting my teeth stuck in and using the cool methods and yeah. finding out more and putting all together and then presenting it at the end. I, yeah. The whole process, I think, is great. Um, so... We'll it's just have to see. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so if you did a uh, non-academic science job, what yeah. would it be? I'm not sure. It's um, It might not even be science. I know in the government there are a few jobs that you can get that involve research, but it's kind of more centred around policies and stuff. So mm. even stepping out of science but still using those research skills I think yeah. would be enjoyable. Um, but again, it's it's kind of hard to find jobs. Unfortunately, I'm not a geneticist. I, <laughs> I look at all these jobs that CSIRO are offering. I'm like, oh man, if only I did microbiology. <laughs> you know? um, but with paleontology, it's a bit difficult. If you're not in academia or you're not in museums, you're kind of outside yeah. of science, yeah. basically. <laughs> um, a museum job would be nice, though, too. <laughs> Uh, it's a strange psychology when you're looking for jobs. I remember when I've been stuck and trawling through job ads. and just go, God, if only I was a woman or indigenous, there would be so many jobs that I'm eligible for. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> there are exactly. There no jobs for white men anymore. It's terrible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then you step back and you go, actually, no, I'm just bitter. Yeah, and, it, and, it's, so, and it's so competitive too. I've applied for jobs where I was absolutely for, perfect for the role, yeah. except there happened to be three more people that were just that minute tiny bit more perfect and of course then you know they got the interviews yeah. because they had that tiny extra side skill that I didn't have even though I fit the role perfectly you know it's it's so competitive as well and you yeah. just yeah I, mean, I try yeah. not to get too grumpy about it but <laughs> I think I'm um, learning that myself it's it's very very easy to be cynical yeah and it's a dangerous spiral yeah and academics <laughs> kind of like to be cynical a lot yeah. of them do quite enjoy i think the the gripes about academia <laughs> and you know they love to have a bit of a complaint so yeah. it can be hard to step away especially when you're so new <laughs> like, keep an open mind you want to be optimistic about this <laughs> yeah and well it depends who you talk to i mean because we're talking to other academics and getting career advice from them we're talking to people who made it through the gauntlet yes and have that you know It'll all be worth it in the end. It yes. works out for me. It'll work out for you, kind of thing. And I find it very refreshing to talk to people who um, who aren't in academia. Yeah. And and their perspective is yeah, it's just so refreshing because yeah. I speak to probably eighty percent of the people I talk to on a daily basis are academics, yeah. if not more. Um, you all have the kind of same thought process. You're all stuck in the same kind of mm. bubble. 
Um, so then when I talk to my friends outside, I'm going, oh, you know, it's just not enough. I only have my PhD and I haven't got enough papers. And they're going, what? A PhD is amazing. I'm like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> you know, it's, it's base level in academia. Yeah. It's just taking scary. the time to stop and be like, okay, hang on a second. Not the whole, the whole world doesn't work like this. Then. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, the idea that you finish your PhD and you're called an early career researcher when you've in by then been 20s. in the field for about <laughs> what close to a decade. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And then you're mid-career researchers, you know, yeah. already in their mid-thirties, early forties, and then mid-career and going, God, okay, I guess so. But yeah, you're mid-career right until you know into your fifties yeah. or oh, yeah. Oh. It's a strange beast. Yeah, yeah, it's quite funny. <laughs> well, maybe we should check in with you at a later date and see. Yeah, how you're exactly. Going see what where, happens. Where you, where you find yourself? Yeah. And what science you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Hopefully, <laughs> something interesting. <laughs> it's always interesting. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's, the thing. that's true. Never tell. <laughs> but if people want to find out more about your research. Your lab is called the FEAR lab. Yes, the FEAR lab. Which stands for? <laughs> for the Function, Evolution and Anatomy Research Lab. Great. Yeah. And you work on big, bitey things a lot of the time. So it's a perfect yes. name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Steve particularly enjoys things that are um, large and carnivorous. Yeah. So I didn't fit carnivorous, but I fit large <laughs> for my work. <laughs> so that's at thefearlab.com. I, I think. think so, yes. All right. And you're on Twitter? I am on Twitter. Don't post very often, but I am there on occasion. Okay, at Ada underscore Klinkhammer. Yep. Good, I've done my stalking. Don't worry. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, I'll leave you to it. Thanks again for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. And thank you guys for listening. If you want to check out more, we're at InSituScience.com or at InSituScience on social media. Thanks again. We'll see you next time. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.